The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Both the S&P and the Nasdaq touching 52-week highs after that cooler-than-expected CPI print. But our portfolio manager says don't be fooled. The biggest risk to stocks is still the fact that there are reasonable alternatives. He gives us the names he's sticking with in the hunt for yield. And while investors still seem to anticipate another rate hike later this month, expectations for a hike in September did tick down fractionally. But Morgan Stanley's chief economist Ellen Zentner says it's going to take a lot more to stop the hawks at the Fed. She joins us in just a moment. Plus, what could AI regulation look like? Senators are now suggesting everything from an independent agency like the FDA to issuing licenses and the bipartisan battle to keep the bots in line. But we begin with today's market rally. And first, Dom Chu has the numbers. It's in the middle of the range. But, Kelly, it's been a generally positive day so far. And again, maybe more tepid so because of the debate about the hawks at the Fed right now. If you look at the overall picture, it is green across the screen, roughly half to one percent gains for all the major indices out there. The Dow Industrial is up about 138 points, one half of one percent, 34,399. 44.73 for the S&P 500, solidly above the 4,400 level, up about three quarters of 1%, 33 points again to the upside. At the highs of the session, up roughly 49 points and up about 24 at the lows of the session so far. So again, very positive so far today. The Nasdaq composite up about 1%, 139 points up, 13,900 for the composite, the last trade there. Kelly did mention what we saw with that cooler than expected inflation print on CPI. That did show some market market gain in terms of bond prices overall. The two-year note specifically dropped by about 16 basis points currently to about 4.74% on the two-year. The 10-year note yield down about 3.85%, so solidly before below 4%, below 5% for the two-year. The spread between the two-year and the 10-year widening out just a little bit there to 88 basis points. So watch those interest rates on that solid, softer than expected inflation rate. And then if you're looking for a couple of stocks to just kind of keep a close eye on today, entering tomorrow, we're talking PepsiCo and Delta Airlines. I want to note that Delta Airlines gets a gold check because it is, again, right near its highs for the year so far. So a new 52-week high in trading today. PepsiCo, not so much there as on its own. But again, a couple of the stocks that are going to be in focus, Kelly, because they kind of kick off earnings season. We always talk about the big banks on Friday, but Delta and PepsiCo, two big consumer-focused companies reporting earnings before the opening bell tomorrow. Keep an eye on those stocks, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. Oh, absolutely. And Delta up 46% this year. It's been one of the best performers. Dom, thanks. You got it. Inflation cooling substantially in June, up just 3% from the previous year, the smallest gain since March of 2021. But it may not be enough to stop the Fed rate hikes. Although stocks are jumping to that conclusion today, one of my next guests says there is still terror risk in the market. There are reasonable alternatives to stocks. Joining me now is Sandy Villery, partner and portfolio manager at the Villery & Company, and Peter Bookvar, who's chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Before we talk Tara versus Tina, Peter, um, what should the Fed be thinking about this inflation report and about those who say, well, is a 3% going to be the low print of the next six months that we get? Well, to your point, it will be just from a, a comparison base effect standpoint. 
And I don't think the Fed is going to be totally surprised by this inflation print since it was only modestly below expectations. And prior to this, they seem to be very committed to raising interest rates again. I think the point that the Fed is trying to basically tell the market here is that if we back off, and this is what basically Tom Barkin said today, if we back off, inflation comes back strong, then we're going to be required to do even more. And I think that's, that's their sort of foot on the neck of inflation that's going to remain there, even though they're not necessarily going to be pressing down much further after right. just one rate hike. It's interesting. The Fed funds futures did not really blink an eye after the CPI print. Because it was sort of in line with what we knew was going to happen. But, Peter, I want to focus on that for a second, the idea right. that if they take their foot you know, off of these hikes and you know, inflation's going to come back. Well, why? There's signs that the labor market's cooling. Does anyone expect it to reaccelerate? Well, not necessarily, but they're afraid that there's still that possibility. It's just the 1970s uh, playbook that they don't want to revisit. And that if they do back off, if they do start to cut interest rates, for example, in response to a rise in the unemployment rate, well, what happens if that does flare up inflation again and then they're really stuck? I mean, just even now, even today, you have oil prices that are quietly at the highest level since late April, coinciding with the weakness in the dollar. So the Fed needs to be stubborn with their persistence on keeping higher rates for longer. Now, I don't agree that they should hike again, but I think keeping rates higher for longer will be its own form of tightening. Sandy? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. The Fed is, um, it, you know, I think they've got to uh, ultimately, um, you know, they're going to raise one more time in, in, in July. And then I think that's the 11th and final. And so, you know, you look back to 2022 with the Fed raising so aggressively and growth stocks just got, you know, absolutely beaten up down 30 percent. And in 2023, they've already discounted that the, that rates are probably going to stay, you know, roll over a little bit. We see the 10 year today and, and growth is up 35 percent on the year with value up two. So we, we want to fish in that value pond as opposed to growth, as we think that, uh, you know, rates probably aren't going any any higher from here. But isn't that the case for growth? Is that I mean, this has been the pause rally since I guess you could call it March, maybe the SVB rally. But we've seen this levitation on the idea that the Fed's going to slow down and that that supports growth stocks. I feel like it, they've already pulled it forward with a 35 percent you know return for growth stocks already. And uh, you look at the tech heavy uh, S&P 500 trading at a multiple over 19 times earnings. And you look at small caps, 13.4 times earnings. So when we're looking at new ideas, we're certainly not looking in the larger cap tech space. You know, we're trying to find things that are more in the, the smaller cap or value side of the equation where there, there's value to be found. You like Caesars, you like Freeport McMoran, Palomar, you like First Hawaiian. You know, a lot of these do have a bank names. Are you worried at all about those results uh, as we move through earnings season? I just think they're 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 not priced for perfection, right? These are these are names that have been uh, overlooked and and they're undervalued, and so I think um, I think they could all do do well. Caesars in particular, uh, you know, got beaten up a little bit this year because um, you know they've got exposure to to the consumer uh, and they've got exposure to you know higher interest rates. But I think that it's not going to be that bad for Caesars at all. Tom Riggs is a great CEO, and I think they're going to they get through it. Now we're six percent off the the all-time high for it, um, wow. or the the 52-week high. So we like Caesars a lot. Yeah, gentlemen, one moment. We got the 10-year auction results. Let's bring in Rick Santelli. How'd they go, Rick? On a day with the 10-year has rallied significantly already. Well, it was a bit like a collie. It had a long tail, and that isn't a good thing. Yes, it tailed one basis point. Let's go through it. $32 billion reopened 10 years, so technically nine-year, 10 months. 
$32 billion, the yield at the auction, 3.857. The problem with the auction, the one issued market was at 3.847. That one base point tail takes a lot of the grade off, even though some of the metrics are actually quite good. And it's on a day where yields drop precipitously, so we can understand pricing maybe was a little lagging with regard to how the aggressiveness of the uh, traders truly could be measured. Uh, 2.53 bid to cover, I have to hit that. To find a higher one, I can find a couple that are equal to 2.53, but to find a higher one, you have to go all the way back to Feb of 22. Uh, and if you look at indirect at 67.7, uh, that's a very, very important one with foreign interest. That's the best since February of this year, along with dealers taking 12.4%. That was the lowest level since February of this year. So all things considered, it was a pretty decent auction other than the final pricing. And as you look at that chart, you can see that the 10-year has really dropped rather precipitously since the failure of two-year notes to close above 5.07% their March post-COVID cycle high yield close. And the Bank of Canada, of course, raised a quarter point to 5% right around, uh, what, uh, 11 o'clock Eastern. And what did that do? That certainly did help to move some of the percentages. I know you guys were talking about them, and I know Peter Bookfar watches them closely. And even though July hardly had a tremor, the September was actually quite volatile. It's been hovering just below 30% most of the last uh, several days since the non-farm jobs report last week, it got down to about 12%. Uh, it's hovering around 17%. And the reason I find that so interesting is, is because so many of the analysts have jumped to the conclusion that Canada's pretty much done. The U.S. is probably pretty much done. The U.K. is the one that seems to have the most aggressive problem at this point in time. Back to you. Did you say a collie? What would, what would the shortest tail be, like a pug? Yeah, probably like a pug. Okay, so, so we'll use the pug in the next comp for a good auction. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Rick Santelli. Peter, give us Thank a final you. comment here. I put rates in and the market in context for us as we look to kind of close up the session after the biggest print of the month, arguably, after the jobs report. I, I think we have to now keep our eye on the Bank of Japan. We talk about the Fed. We talk about... Uh, other central banks. To me, the Bank of Japan is now the next in focus because what they do could have a direct impact on where longer-term U.S. rates go. In the next couple of weeks, it's very possible that the BOJ widens yield curve control, which can send a tremor through global bond markets. So while the Fed may be done close to being done raising short-term interest rates, I still think we have potentially higher levels uh, in the tenure before things settle out. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Thank you both today, Sandy Villery and Peter Bookvar. Meantime, some of the big travel names hitting 52-week highs just as vacation season heats up. And as hotel and rental prices have been coming down in some key markets, Seema, I have been waiting for the explanation for all of this. We've been all waiting, and now we are seeing some relief for travelers, Kelly. The CPI report revealing airfares dropping 8.1% in the month of June, while lodging rates fell 2%. Truest analysts say high-income travelers who visited domestic resorts over the past two years are now going back to Europe and Canada, and that inadvertently is pushing U.S. rates lower, plus the stronger U.S. dollar. That's also incentivizing outbound international travel. With that said, domestic airfare is down from a year ago, but take 
take a look at estimates for a round-trip ticket outside the U.S., overseas. That's still 16% more expensive than a year ago. And also some important context. Go-to markets like Maui, Florida Keys have, yes, seen their hotel rates come down, but prices are still much higher than pre-pandemic levels and above that $300 rate for New York as well. Vacation rentals, that's where research firm AirDNA expects rates to fall even further due to an oversupply issue, plus consumers becoming more cost conscious. And Kelly, that's a point Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky has made uh, in the past. In fact, last time he came on with us on CNBC. Right. So where do they think that prices are going from here? Is there talk about a supply glut, something that could kind of push us lower? um, Or is it just regional and anecdotal? I think it will really depend on what part of the travel story we are discussing. If it comes, to, if it pertains to the cruise lines, because they are the last, it's the last sector to really rebound from the pandemic. Analysts have been saying this sector still has pricing power over the next few months. Hotels, that's going to be a big question because yes, there is a supply. Uh, equate supply issue here, which is the higher cost of capital that's constraining developers and their ability to add new properties. So that does, does that actually give the hotels more pricing power? That will be a key question when Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, and among others report earnings in the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. And of course, Delta tomorrow will be a really good barometer, probably the best performer, best right. executor of the airlines. Seema, thanks. We appreciate it. Seema Modi. Coming up, AI is one of the hottest topics on Wall Street, but not all AI ETFs are a good bet. Bank of America warning they're not all as intelligent as you might expect. We'll ask the bank's head of ETF strategy which ones he likes best. Plus, a new FDA. Lawmakers are considering proposals on how to regulate artificial intelligence. We'll bring you the latest out of Washington. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets. Dow's off the highs, only at four-tenths right now, or 137. S&P up three-quarters of a percent, 33 points. Nasdaq still up a percent. Russells are leading the way of one and a quarter, but the 10-year, 385, down from 4% after CPI this morning. The exchange is back after this. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. AI, the hottest trend on the street lately, and less than an hour ago, Elon Musk announced his new endeavor, XAI. Along with a new website, he tweeted the company's intent is to, quote, understand reality. 
and artificial intelligence has given mega cap names like NVIDIA and Microsoft a huge boost this year. But they're not the only way to get exposure to this hot new trend. Compared to the S&P 500, excluding tech, which is basically flat for the year, the average AI ETF has gained 27 percent. My next guest recently initiated coverage on eight of these funds, but he's not necessarily a buyer of all of them. Joining me now is Jared Woodard, investment and ETF strategist at B of A Securities. Jared, welcome. You've done the hard work for a lot of people here. Um, how do we separate the, is it the weed, the, the, the what from the chaff? The wheat from the chaff, yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I'm glad to be with you because the, the differences among these funds uh, can be pretty dramatic. You have everything from pure play concentrated funds, uh, BOTZ is an example of fund we like in that category, versus other funds that are much more diverse that include you know, companies that you might think have absolutely nothing to do with artificial intelligence or new technology. Doing that work under the hood, knowing what you own is always good advice, but it's especially good advice with a theme that still is vaguely defined in, in some ways as artificial intelligence. Yeah. So vaguely defined me, you know, so can we get specific? Like, I feel bad sometimes asking you to call out people who might be, you know, uh, or maybe we'll just call out the best. How do you want to do this? Well, I think there, there are some really attractive funds that have defined their universe well and, and have, have strong you know, risk-adjusted returns with good fundamentals. Um, looking at the coverage across B of A analysts, we incorporate those stock views into our ETF ratings. And three funds that we do like include AIQ, um, another fund, BOTZ, I mentioned, another fund is TECB. Two of those are from Global X, one from iShares. And these are all uh, ETFs that are focused on artificial intelligence, but have defined their universe of coverage in a way that has you know, a, plausible, uh, a plausible set of stocks. And uh, we think that's going to be incredibly important because as this theme develops, as, as the hardware and software uh, becomes more advanced, you want to be focused in companies that are truly participating in this market and aren't just shouting it out on earnings calls or making some nominal you know, investment just so they can say that they're participating in artificial intelligence. Absolutely. So the ones that you want to avoid then are those who might include a whole bunch of names that aren't really AI. It kind of like reminds me of the SoftBank story, unfortunately. A whole bunch of AI names or companies that have mentioned AI but aren't really true innovators and leaders in the space. Do we want to give any examples of that or just kind of how, what would you tell people to be on the lookout for? Well, I think the, the greatest thing to be on the lookout for, the risks involved here, are pretty substantial. I mean, I think this is a very attractive long-term investment theme, but we expect a lot of volatility, and we actually have a relatively overall neutral view on the category as a whole. One thing investors uh, might not know is that the average stock in these AI ETFs, um, one-third of the stocks, I should say, are unprofitable today. That's double the rate of the unprofitable stocks in the NASDAQ 100. Uh, many of these funds are trading at extreme valuations. The overall average for these ETFs is trading at 31 times earnings. Again, double um, many of the familiar stock indexes people are watching. So you're paying a really high price for some firms that many of which have yet to show profits on the hopes that this long-term theme will play out. We would expect that there's going to be a lot more volatility as some market leaders emerge and, and even investors who want to get involved today should be prepared to dollar cost average in over time. Yeah. So AIQ, you mentioned there's a 63% overlap with uh, B of A's thematic AI stocks, so you like that TECB. You mentioned bots, you say is good, uh, best for pure play exposure. Further down the list, XT, ROBT, GIN, IRBO, DTEC, these start to have less and less overlap with what you guys have identified as the real AI winners, is that right? That's exactly right. Either they have uh, less exposure to the names that our equity analysts like, they have less exposure to the, to the AI theme overall, as our team has, has identified, or, or both. And some of those have you know, greater expenses, have had lagging returns, other inputs to our model. 
looking at all these measures in, in a composite way gives us a, a, a total output score and, and gives us more confidence that we can invest in the funds that are likely to track this theme most closely in the future. So which one would be the best short? Would it be the one that has the, the, the most pure play if you think this whole trend is going to reset? Or would it be the one that has, you know, the least to do and kind of maybe uh, some of the lower quality ones seem to overlap more with the, the hype than the reality? If you're a skeptic about artificial intelligence, and I think there's some really interesting arguments uh, to that view, we wrote a report about that uh, you know, th this week. If you think there's going to be a marginal contributor to productivity, then our advice is to invest in the firms across the whole economy that will be able to take advantage of, of, of AI in their own business to become more profitable on their own, not necessarily the hardware and software firms. So I think if, in other words, I think artificial intelligence becomes almost a kind of binary bet. If you're a true believer, if you think this will be as transformational as electricity or computing or the steam engine, by all means get involved. If you're a bit more cautious, I think you can invest a little bit today, but also be prepared to buy the winners the industry leaders across the broader economy. And if those risks do emerge that I mentioned around valuation and, and profits, then I think that the pure play ETFs and the stocks in those funds will also be the ones the most at risk. Yeah, no, it's a great point. The, the binary nature reminds me more of crypto, although at least in this case, I can see clear use cases. Jared, thanks for your time and for joining us with the research. We appreciate it. Thank you. Jared Woodard with Bank of America. Meantime, lawmakers are considering proposals on how to regulate artificial intelligence, including forming a central agency like the FBI or the FDA to oversee it. Emily Wilkins is live in Washington with the latest for us. Emily? Well, Kelly, senators are discussing regulations on companies and developing using AI as a part of larger bipartisan legislation. Lawmakers told us that they are considering several options for overseeing AI, including an independent agency that would function, as you said, kind of similar to how the FDA regulates food and drugs. Other senators told us there's been discussions about requiring companies doing AI work to be licensed by the government to ensure that they are following safety protocols. Now, while while congressional leaders are pushing for AI legislation, lawmakers are also cognizant of some of the shortcomings here. Any bill they pass, Senator Marco Rubio, he noted that other countries like China or Qatar, they won't be beholden to any sort of U.S. laws. They think there's a strategic advantage to their country to lead on this technology at the next level. They're, they're not going to care what the U.S. law is on that. This is not, a, this is not something we have a monopoly on. Senators held their first classified briefing on national security and AI yesterday. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer rolled out a framework for a bipartisan AI bill earlier this summer and said he hopes to finalize that legislation in the coming months. Kelly? And that bipartisan legislation, would it create uh, or decide how to create this agency or would they start in a more piecemeal fashion? So I think at this point, there's just a lot of discussion going on. There are lots of ideas. The agency is one idea. The government licensing is another idea. All the senators I spoke to said it is way too soon to say what exactly could be in this bill. But there is really a strong bipartisan urgency to get this done, and not just in the Senate, but in the House as well, in a way that I think we don't really see for a lot of issues up here on, on Capitol Hill. The amount of focus, the amount of bipartisanship, it will take a while to hash out the details, uh, but certainly the work is being done. The discussions are being had, and there is a focus on trying to get something. Schumer said the timeline isn't years, that it's months. And so perhaps later this year, perhaps early next. Emily, thanks. Emily Wilkins reporting in Washington. Can't get enough AI? Then don't miss a special CNBC Pro Talk. Kate Rooney, welcome back, Kate. Joining a roundtable of experts on all things AI related. It's happening next hour at 2 p.m. Eastern, so scurry. 
Coming up, trouble brewing at the Magic Kingdom. Rosenblatt warning of a difficult period to come for Disney. We'll speak to the analyst behind that call. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map today. Home Depot and Goldman are leading the way as we hang on to a 144-point gain. UNH and Cisco lagging, though, about a 2-to-1 ratio of advancers to decliners. We're back after this. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring full throttle is half the fun where you can sink a putt raise a glass and there's always room for one more round ocean city maryland somewhere to smile about book your trip at oceocean.com Welcome back to The Exchange. We are well off the highs. Dow was up about 325 points earlier, but now about 200 points below that level. Still positive, though. Nasdaq up 1.1%. Small cap Brussels are up even more, believe it or not. And we're keeping an eye on Domino's, which is the top performer in the S&P today after a major strategy shift. After years of avoiding third-party delivery, they're partnering with Uber to help jolt online ordering. They say Uber Eats will be their exclusive third-party platform in the U.S. until 2024. DPZ shares up 11% today on pace for their best day in nearly two years. And Home Depot up about 2% after unveiling, no, its line of Halloween decor. This year, it's going big. This year's offerings include more oversized skeletons and ghouls that are 7 to 13 feet tall. Online sales begin tomorrow. This is not good news. This share should be read on this. While most Halloween items uh, will hit store shelves by Labor Day weekend. I'm just not ready. Uh, and finally, Lucid Group is the worst performer on the NASDAQ after second quarter deliveries fell short of expectations. They did about 1,400 vehicles in the most recent quarter, and that was 400 short of what Wall Street was hoping. Lucid is expected to report full second quarter results next month. The shares are down 12%. Over to Courtney Reagan now for a CNBC News update. Courtney? Hi, Kelly. Well, as the NATO summit comes to a close in Lithuania, President Biden delivered a speech just moments ago where he touted the strength of the NATO alliance and its commitment to Ukraine. Each member of NATO knows that the strength of our people and the power of our unity cannot be denied. The president now heads to Finland, the newest NATO member, for a show of support with the Nordic countries where he will meet with the leaders of Finland, Sweden, Norway, Iceland and Denmark. Well, the ACLU filed a legal challenge today to block an hours-old abortion ban in Iowa. The bill passed in a late-night vote, making abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected illegal. That's usually around six weeks before many women even know they're pregnant. The Republican governor in Iowa says she will sign the bill into law Friday, and it would take immediate effect. NASA shared a stunning image to mark the one-year anniversary of the Webb Space Telescope. It shows a close-up of dozens of stars at the moment of birth. NASA scientists say it shows what our universe would have looked like billions of years ago when it formed. Space stuff is so cool. It looks like Kelly, a back jumping over to cat to me. Oh, yeah, it's kind of like, what do you see in the clouds? What do you see in yeah, the stars there? Uh, Court. I can see it. <laughs> Thank you, Court. Thanks. Courtney Reagan. Stocks are rallying after that cooler-than-expected inflation data. Some believe it's exactly the signal the Fed was looking for to stop hiking. But Morgan Stanley's chief economist says a July hike is definitely still on the table. We'll ask her why and whether it should be on the other side of this break. 
Welcome back. The rise in consumer prices, smaller than expected last month. And even that number is being propped up by housing and insurance costs. But combine it with the broader cooling in the labor market, weak manufacturing and tightening lending standards. And one can make the argument that the Fed's tightening is already doing its job. But my next guest says rate hikes will continue until the Fed sees further persistent slowing in the super core services numbers. Joining me with more is Ellen Zentner, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist. Ellen, welcome. Hi, Kelly. I miss you. It's great. I was. It's great to actually see you and not just hear your, you know, your voice. And yeah. you know, this is all a sign of normalization. But, uh, but I guess we're yeah. a long way from that for the Fed. So, what was your reaction to the report this morning? Yeah. So relief. I mean, it sounds a lot like the relief that we got on Friday with the lower jobs spread, lower than expected. Um, and just as services was exactly where the slowing was in the jobs print, services was what we were focused on in today's print as well. Um, and you nailed it on the on the 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 head. The uh, uh, hit the nail on the head. The um, services excluding housing flat, and that's great news. But look, it doesn't change the trajectory for the Fed, who is dead set on a July rate hike. Um, and because this is just one round of data and they're going to need more. It's interesting that you say that, though, because the reason to focus on these kind of super core is they're supposed to be like kind of long leading indicators of where inflation is going. And so if we're already told that those don't have a lot of price pressures, we know the labor market isn't as strong as it was. Isn't that basically job done? So look, the, the Fed definitely after our bout with transitory, remember that word? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the Fed doesn't mind being on the wrong side uh, of the coin on inflation this time. Um, and you look, I don't know if you recall, but Janet Yellen in the last cycle when she was chair was very keen on constantly reminding us that one data point does not a trend make. And so these data can easily get revised. You can easily have uh, distortions in the data that are then corrected for later on. You know, and I think we're getting everything's moving in the right direction. Right. But you look at the absolute level of prices and they're still too high um, in the U.S. The rate of inflation is still too high. So these are very encouraging signs. And I think it suggests that inflation is going to be coming down faster than the Fed expects. Right. But that's not something that's going to affect how they feel about the near term here in terms of what they still need to do. I'm just looking through it and going, okay, shelter, we know the deal with that. Rents are much softer, obviously. Home prices are definitely not rising like they once were. So that's going to come out of the CPI car insurance. That's going to come out once the premium hikes go through and and stop pushing things upward. I mean, I'm looking around. Other than energy, I'm not sure where we get reacceleration. The labor market's cooling, right? So maybe wage pressures are still around 4%. They're not going to go higher than that. And there's going to be a lot of things pushing against this. So I I just don't know where the the need to further hike when we still aren't totally sure what the cumulative effects of these will be is, is why that's so pressing. Yeah, so your arguments are exactly what the more dovish folks on the Fed have been pushing. And look, I know that it looks like there's a big consensus, strong consensus on the Fed to deliver two more hikes this year. But there really is a battle of minds on the Fed of those that believe that we've that we've not seen anywhere near all of the impacts of the policy tightening and credit impacts coming through yet. And those that believe we've mostly seen those impacts already come through. And I'm with you. I think there's a little bit too much complacency out there that we've not yet seen the full effects or that that we're not going to see further effects from credit tightening. I think in the third quarter is when you would typically see those impacts come through. And so even though 
uh, you know, we've had the soft landing call on the economy since February of last year. Mm-hmm. And we've been one of the more optimistic on the economy all this time. We still don't think that we're out of the woods. And so what I want to focus on now and what I think people should be focused on is it's not about the direction of travel now on inflation. I think it's pretty clear that the economy is slowing, that inflation is going to be coming down. I think it's the speed at which it comes down. When will Powell be uh, satisfied that it's coming down quickly enough? And he's talked about staying on that tightening bias until they see a clear and convincing drop in inflation. And we're just not there yet. We're still sort of at the beginning of that. Now, I think by the September FOMC meeting, when they are revising their projections and they're going to have to revise their inflation projections lower, I think that's when they come off the tightening bias and remind us that they're still going to hold rates steady for a time. But I think it'll take until then for them to come off that tightening bias. So I do think this July hike is going to be the last one. But I don't think Fed is going to acknowledge that. Where are you on the recession at this point? Like you said, you guys have been more in the soft landing camp, which looks apt given what's played out this year. Uh, What do you think for GDP, though, back half of this year and first half of next year? So I think back half of this year, I think, is going to be slower than the first half. The first half, really, the story there is is not getting consumption wrong or jobs wrong or inflation wrong. We've had incredible strength in the industrial complex that Mm -hmm. has been surprising. And it's a lot of the infrastructure spending that was authorized in late 2021 that's coming through. We're also seeing onshoring and nearshoring impacts uh, on the industrial sector. And that's something that our LATAM economists covering Mexico have really been pounding their fists on the table about. That is going to be fading over time, though. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a lift to productivity. I think that can extend the cycle as well. So we're still in the soft landing camp and we don't see a recession this year. I think let's have a dose of humility here, though. Any economist that tells you they're accurate more than two quarters out is just lying. There's so much that can go wrong with the economy the further you go out on the horizon. What I'm most focused on is that if there is a recession, that it is a mild one, because I think we do have a lot of cushion in the economy uh, to withstand uh, a, a downturn and to push against it. Right. And some of these metrics, I mean, you know, I, I still maybe only want to take the yield curve pretty seriously and that it's a worrisome sign. But you look at it and you go, OK, if the recession isn't this year, 2024 is a re-election year for a president who's already pushed such fiscal stimulus through the pipeline that it seems to your point about the industrial piece to be tr- contributing tremendously to keeping us, you know, from a harder landing right now. And maybe that can continue through 2024. I mean, I just think that Maybe this is a silly observation. I just think it's politically unlikely we would have a recession next year. That they would, If that really looked like it were starting to happen, don't you think they'd jump in and, and do plenty to keep that from taking place? Uh, typically not proactively. Um, the government has automatic stabilizers that are, that are set to kick in um, when the unemployment rate deteriorates enough. Um, that's done on a state-by-state basis. You know, the presidential elections have very little to do with the business cycle. Um, and so if we do get a downturn in 2024 for uh, the incumbent party, it is just an unfortunate outcome. But it's not something that that uh, presidents control at all. Hmm. All right. We'll see. Uh, for now, as you guys said, it's more uh, it's it's softer than we expected. That's for sure. Ellen, thanks so much for your time. It's great to see you today. Thanks, Kelly. Ellen Zentner with Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, let's call it chips helping chips. NVIDIA forced to ditch its plans to acquire SoftBank's arm last year. But as that chip designer readies for an IPO now, NVIDIA could still wind up playing a pivotal role. Details next on The Exchange.
Welcome back, everybody. Shares of NVIDIA up 3% today. There's a report that it's in talks to anchor the IPO of chip designer Arm, a long-awaited public listing that would be this year's biggest. Christina Partsonevelis has more in today's Tech Check. Christina? Well, less than two years ago, NVIDIA tried to buy British chip designer Arm for, what, $40 billion, but failed to do so due to antitrust issues. Flash forward to today, and NVIDIA could play a major role in Arm's IPO. Keep in mind, Arm makes the uh, blueprint designs for chips and smartphones all around the world, probably in the smartphone in your hand right now, and has expanded into auto design as well as servers. It's expected to be listed in New York as early as this fall by parent company SoftBank. And so what the FT is reporting is that NVIDIA was approached to be an anchor investor. So that means taking a lead role in buying shares and building confidence among other investors. But NVIDIA's preferred valuation for ARM is in a range of about $35 to $40 billion, which is way less than SoftBank's $80 billion goal. So that means NVIDIA can't go it alone. Memory maker SK Hynix, smartphone chip maker Qualcomm, and Intel have all shown previous interest in investing in ARM in some shape or form. And so a consortium of ARM investors will not only increase the value of their relationships with ARM, but also reduce risk for SoftBank's stake post-IPO and help possibly drive this stock higher. This is according to Jeffrey Analyst in a note. And why is this? Well, SoftBank has a 75% stake in ARM with the rest held by its vision fund. A lot is on this IPO given SoftBank's uh, previous, let's say, investment missteps to be nice. But in SoftBank's public listing of ARM last May, it said ARM would continue to be a subsidiary post-IPO. Likely, that means keeping control over ARM, even with these big anchor investors. So Kelly, there's a reason to secure NVIDIA. You guessed it, AI. NVIDIA not only drums up confidence in a tough IPO market, but makes it clear that AI is how ARM may plan to seek out growth. A little trickier for me to figure out is why NVIDIA is partnering or investing in this. Is it a biotech company today? Yeah, so the biofirm Recursion, and what they do is Recursion uses generative AI uh, to sift through all of these massive, massive data sets, and from there they could help towards drug discovery. So they're using AI to sift through and find new uses for old drugs or uh, any type of potential drug candidates. These databases are massive, so NVIDIA's just announced that they're spending $50 million, which isn't that substantial, $50 million to gain access to those data sets. Why do this? Because NVIDIA also has a new BioNemo cloud service that they plan to license to their own customers that would get that means that NVIDIA would get access to all of that data from recursion. That's why NVIDIA is doing it. You know they're the AI leaders. And all of this to say we're going to probably have way more details because we have a first on CNBC. The recursion CEO is going to be on closing bell at 4.15 p.m. Uh, to discuss all of this. So I'm sure we'll get some more details. But it's an interesting, uh, uh, I guess, push forward for NVIDIA into the biotech world yeah. and obviously beneficial for recursion because the stock is up, what, 77 percent? Wow. Christina, thanks. Christina Partsonevelis. Still to come, the titans of media are back in Sun Valley, but there are some storm clouds overhead. We'll go there live on the ground for the latest and a pulse. Plus, one top analyst warning on Disney, why he thinks the Magic Kingdom is headed for a difficult period. That's coming up next. Welcome back. Media heavyweights are meeting at the so-called summer camp for billionaires in Sun Valley, Idaho, talking everything from AI to economic headwinds. Sometimes there's deal talk, too. Julia Borston has been speaking with the executives at the Allen & Co. conference and brings us the headlines so far. Hi, Julia. 
Hi, Kelly. Well, the conference kicked off this morning with a panel on the economy with former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and former ECB President Mario Draghi. And right now, investors Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel are on stage and they are surely talking about AI. In fact, a half dozen CEOs here have told me that AI is top of mind with OpenAI CEO Sam Altman set to speak on Friday. He told me that the next iteration of ChatGPT will be better, smarter, and faster with new capabilities. Meanwhile, when it comes to the economy, CEOs tell me they're seeing a relatively robust consumer, though the advertising market is lagging. Take a listen. The ad market is still weak. I I would say weak relative to recent history, but but stable, meaning it doesn't seem to be getting worse right now. Who knows as the, you know, things change in the economy. But, but right now it's sort of what, what our team has referred to as stable weakness, I think, is, it seems to be the tune. For the media moguls here, including Warner Brothers Discovery's David Zaslav, Paramount's Bob Backish, and Netflix's co-CEO Greg Peters, there is also concern about a potential actor strike, which could be called as soon as tonight. And Disney CEO Bob Iger is here amid reports that he's looking to sell Disney's hot star India business. He is here with Parks Chief Josh Tomorrow and Disney Entertainment co-chairman Dana Walden. Of course, there is lots of speculation about whether Iger will name one or both of those executives as his eventual successor. Kelly? Big interview with him tomorrow morning uh, as well. I think we'll get, get a decent amount of time. Julia, thanks very much, our Julia Borston. And my next guest has some concerns of his own about Disney. He just lowered his Q3 earnings estimates by nearly 10%. Writing in a recent note, Disney is in the midst of a difficult period with parks traffic slowing and an ESPN Hulu breakup underway. Joining me here on set is Barton Crockett, senior research analyst at Rosenblatt Securities. Welcome. Thank you for having I, me here. I wish it were better news. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. you know, we can talk about some of the other parts of your coverage space later. But on the Disney case in particular, do you think this, uh, the parks traffic slowdown is, is significant, and what's causing it? So look, the, the, the point I was making in my note is I'm not concerned about the Orlando parks. They had a difficult compare to the year ago when they had a 50th anniversary promotion. They've been managing for less attendance and more revenue per attendee with their reservation system. So that's actually a better experience when there's fewer people in the parks. And internationally, their parks are in a big growth cycle right now because of the pandemic recovery in Asia, particularly in China. Just a quick point. When I was looking at some of the stats about parks traffic, now I don't know if this was just Orlando or all of it, but it looked Uh like even relative to 2019 and some of those earlier years that we were still down. But again, you think that's part of a a specific plan? Sure, it's part of a plan. I'm not sure, you know, those numbers have not been reported by the company. There's a lot of chatter out there and we'll see what, you know, what we get in terms of numbers. But I do believe that the international growth is meaningful. And um, I think that the per cap growth is meaningful. And I think the crowds have been managed with the reservation system that spaces people into shoulder periods so that it's a better experience all around and better for the brand. So if international is so important, what is the kind of news about this India divestiture? Is the star India or, or is it hot? So just explain to me what you think yeah. strategically is going so, on. So look, the company has not announced anything. We've only seen the press reports that you've seen. And um, I, you know, Their India presence is really through the Fox acquisition that is Star Television, Hotstar, the streaming service. And that was a business that was uh, uh, really a shining light of Fox and a growth opportunity, something that was supposed to be generating a billion dollars of cash flow for um, Fox. And then it appears from this general report that they're expecting way less than that, trending down 50% this year to a 100 million number and maybe a loss next year. 
And that really speaks to the difficulties writ large in television. Part of it is uh, cricket rights, so sports rights were more expensive. Uh, they lost the streaming component of that. They only have television. They're paying more for that. And part of that is, um, you know, the pressures we think that are endemic kind of economically in India and, you know, globally with people doing more things online. Um, you know, there's a, and part of that is reflected there. That is fascinating because I remember when that acquisition happened and this India piece when business was talked yeah. about, and I wasn't sure if they were spitting it out out of strength or weakness. So this kind of answers that. Yeah. What about the more strategic questions about Hulu and, and all the rest of it? I mean, Bob Iger has some big decisions to make. Yeah. Look, I, you know, we've, we continue to have a buy rating on Disney, and we think that they have tremendous, you know, non parallel kind of assets. Theme parks are iconic, their content is iconic. Um, but the earnings trajectory right now is not great and it needs to improve. And it, you know, I think that the stock works one of two ways. Either this you know, management regime figures it out and the trajectory improves, or there's gonna be pressure to break up Disney. And um, you know, it's one way or the other. Our base case is that it's not broken up, but if it were, you know, I think that the stock right now fairly reflects the value of the content, the value of the theme parks, and the rest of it you're really not paying anything for. Um, so you can make an argument on that basis as a hedge, even if the fundamentals don't improve. That's, that would be pretty shocking if they ever it went in that direction. The fact that you would even consider the possibility tells you how far we've come. Well, it also talks about, you know, the world is changing, right? So it's not clear that the structure, having all of these businesses under Disney, is the best structure, right? Sports rights are really, I think, going to, over time, flow towards the scale players in tech, right? Apple. Um, you know, the But Google, it makes you Amazon. wonder about all of media. Like what yeah. you're saying has huge implications. Yeah, and it, it might be that, you know, content fits better within a tech platform. Theme parks fit better kind of independently. That might be the better future. Um, this team's challenge right now is to prove that that's not the case because I don't think that's what they want to do. I don't think that's on the table today. But if they don't have success, it will be. Fascinating. Quickly before we go, have you tried threads yourself? I have tried threads. What do you think? And, uh, you know, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I, um, um, what do you think the use case is? Who I does think it that, appeal to? I, I think it uh, appeals to people who were frustrated with Twitter, you know, people who are um, um, wanting to uh, have a, a light and friendly kind of conversation around fashion and around, um, you know, celebrity. I don't think this is the Barton Crockett profile. Yeah. Of what maybe, because yeah. here's the thing. I tried it out. I don't, uh, I don't get it. I don't need it at all. It's, it takes my Instagram audience who I follow for a very different reason, gives it to me in a text version, and doesn't give me news, and doesn't give me FinTwit, which is, so I don't know yeah. if I'm the weird one, or, you know, or if Threads is still looking for you know, a long-lasting niche. Well, the, the opportunity they have is to change, right? So they're starting, they've done tremendously well getting you know, over 100 million people signing up. And I think they've eschewed kind of interest in politics and news, but they need politics and news, I think, to be a real Twitter replacement. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can develop organically and their opposition to it can evolve. So if it does, I think, um, you know, it could be really incredible. Remind me your price target on Meta. So I've got um, a hundred, um, a, uh, a price target that's up about 10% from here. So 333, All I right, think. so some upside if they yeah. can uh, figure this out. Barton, thanks so much for your time today. It's great, great to thank have you. you here. Barton Crockett with Rosenblatt. Quick programming note, Disney CEO Bob Iger will sit down with David Faber for an exclusive interview tomorrow starting at 8 a.m. Eastern time. I won't miss it. I don't think you should either. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Cannonball! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.